This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. The interviews you're about to hear are with Ben Eltham, who joined me to talk about federal politics. Then Mark McKenna, a professor of history from the University of Sydney, joined me to talk about his quarterly essay, Moment of Truth, History and Australia's Future. And then finally, Dr. Mary Tomsick and Dr. Geordie Silverstein, historians at the University of Melbourne, came in to talk about their AFL history blog, History from the Centre Square. You are listening to 3RRFM. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy and I now have Ben Eltham, who is National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, joining me in the studio to talk about federal politics. Hello, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Good morning to you. How is it going? Yeah, pretty good, thanks, actually. Yeah, Yeah. that's good. Uh, Ben, let's talk federal politics. There's plenty to get through. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. One of the things that has just been a hot topic, well, across the last two weeks, and uh, we've heard not only Matthias Corman, but also Chris Bowen out this morning talking about it, is dividend imputation, yay, and the cash refunds uh, reform that Labor has put forward. It started off as a very bold, visionary, progressive uh cut down on tax concessions to the most rich in Australia and now we're seeing them slowly, slowly alter and modify uh, in response to feedback from the community. Where are we at now, Ben, with this policy? Yeah, uh, Labor has decided that it's going to exempt uh, all pensioners, both full and part pensioners, from uh, this particular windback. So remember what the government's doing is they're going to get rid of the cash rebate that the government pays you for holding fully frank shares. Uh, this is got to do with Australia's very arcane taxation system, which basically gives people a government payment in return for getting dividends on these fully frank shares. Uh, Because of the logic, or supposedly the logic, um, that those shares have already paid their company tax. So you, the uh, dividend holder, are entitled to a tax rebate. It's an interesting logic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Look, I've never really understood it myself. And I think like a lot of people, I was kind of surprised to even learn about it a couple of weeks ago Mm. and to learn that it's something like $5 billion a year to the federal budget. So um, look, the majority of people who get these dividends are fairly wealthy, uh, so-called self-funded retirees. An excellent article by Ross Gittins in Fairfax this Mm. week, actually, where he pointed out that the idea that they are so-called self-funded retirees is a bit of a misnomer because uh, we, the taxpayer, are funding them plenty in the form of very large tax concessions on their savings. Um, But uh, be that as it may, Labor is going to uh, protect people on the pension who might receive, you know, in some cases, just a few dollars of of cash rebates through their shares. Um, In some cases, a more significant amount. But um, anyone who's on the pension qualifies for the pension will be protected according to Labor. Yep, and uh, Chris Bowen has said that just 300,000 low-income retirees who would have been affected will now be unaffected by this change. Um, So basically they're exempting 25% of those who would have been affected by the initial proposal. Uh, And as he said today, uh, it's still protecting 94% of the revenue that, that they would have earned and will earn should this reform come through. So it doesn't seem like it's a massive backtrack. 
Well, that just shows you how unequal this tax concession is. You know, clearly the, well, 94% of the value of it goes to people who are not on the pension. Mm. In other words, very wealthy people. So um, Australia's tax system is massively unequal. Um, I might give a plug to the excellent Anglicare report out this week, which points this out. It says that the cost of tax concessions going to the wealthiest 20% of Australians is on the order of something like uh, 50 or 60 billion dollars a year. So there's a massive amount of government money that is handed out to the wealthiest in our society through the tax system. And um, it's high time, I think, that the government started to wind these back. Exactly. That report is um, out through Anglicare and Per Capita, which is a think tank. Um, And that is a really interesting report. I saw that come out yesterday. And uh, it is interesting when you turn the tables and uh, see that major tax concessions cost the federal budget $135 billion a year in lost (laughs) revenue. Was it $135? Mm, It's huge. Massive. And uh, yeah, it's the cost to Australian taxpayers of the richest 20% of Australians is $68 billion per annum. So, I mean, talking about, as we often hear, uh, people saying what the poor people cost to us when we have to pay them welfare, well, if you turn the tables around, it's far more costly to provide tax concessions to those who don't really need them. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, as we know, Australia's welfare system is incredibly tightly targeted. So it's very highly means tested and assets tested. And in order to qualify for welfare in Australia, you have to meet very, very stringent tests indeed. Mm. And in fact, the government made those tests more stringent this week with the passage of its latest welfare bill. Um, It it sort of uh, claims that it's a welfare reform bill, but uh, I don't think it's really a reform. Actually, it's a, it, it's making it more aggressive and it's making it difficult, more difficult for people to claim welfare. Yeah. One, one measure that I think was particularly unfair, which was voted up by the Senate this week, was the, the change to the backdating of your welfare payments. So um, people who've been on Centrelink might know that if you apply for uh, unemployment benefits or a particular government benefit, um, sometimes it can take weeks for Centrelink to process uh, your forms, get all your details in order, um, but you're back paid from the day in which you lodge your well, you used to be back paid from the date in which you lodged. That's no longer the case. From now on, you're going to be paid when the government decides that they're going to pay you, when they get their act together. Now, that's going to have a significant impact on people because in some cases it can take weeks. Um, So people are going to be missing out on hundreds and hundreds of dollars that they used to be entitled to. I think that's particularly unfair. And as the welfare lobby has pointed out, that's going to increase Australia's already bad problem with homelessness. It's hugely unfair and as we know Centrelink has major delays in not only just someone calling up to get advice on a hotline but also the processing of these applications. So the longer Centrelink takes, the more money that someone who really needs it, you know, they'll be losing. Yeah, it's incredibly regressive and it's punitive, I think, Mm. because um, these people have done nothing wrong, uh, despite what the government keeps trying to tell us. Um, All they're doing is applying for an entitlement that they may well be entitled to. Um, And I think it also highlights the increasingly right-wing nature of the Senate in the current 
sort of iterations. So after all of the citizenship changes have washed through and all those senators have been kicked out because mm. of their Section 44 problems, um, the way that that's washed through with the, the new senators is they're substantially more pro-government, more right-wing. Uh, the One Nation guys are more pro-the-government. Um, we've had... Uh, the family first senator, Lucy Gachui, joined the government. She's become a liberal. Um, we've had one of Nick Xenophon's senators uh, declare himself an independent and start to vote with the government. So um, the crossbench is much less hostile to the government than it used to be. And this is allowing the government to start to pass a lot more legislation. Mm. And who did vote for those changes, Ben? Uh, principally One Nation. Uh, they were the deciding block that voted for those welfare changes. Mm. Um, and I think that's really interesting because if you look at who One Nation voters are, they're often people on benefits, uh, people in uh, unemployment, for example, or people in some of the regional parts of Queensland, which have very high unemployment rates and high levels of welfare dependency. So quite an interesting decision there by those One Nation senators, including Pauline Hanson. Mm, and also interesting that One Nation uh, has also supported or expressed their support for the company tax cuts that the Liberal Party uh, and the Nationals are trying to get through the Senate. Uh, obviously, they've they put forward the initial round of tax cuts for smaller businesses, but they're obviously looking to continue the increase um, to obviously get to a point where the larger corporations receive a tax cut. Do you think that's going to get through? Looking increasingly likely, yes, Amy. Um, I think the government in a good position now to negotiate. Um, they've got Matthias Cormann in there, who's their best negotiator, arguably their best political operator, full stop. Um, and he's working the numbers in the Senate. So it's looking increasingly like the government will pass the, the big tranche of company tax cuts. These are the ones for the big corporations. Ironically, of course, it's at the very time when we're learning more and more about these company tax cuts that they basically won't deliver any economic growth. They'll just be a hit to the budget. They'll really just be a handout to shareholders. Yes, and uh, we were talking off air that there was an interesting um, news item that came out around a business council survey and the results uh, around what CEOs thought uh, a tax cut would deliver or perhaps wouldn't deliver. Yeah, that's right. Somebody's leaked out a uh, secret survey from the Business Council of Australia that shows that 80% of CEOs of big companies have said they would not use a tax cut to uh, to invest more in their workforce, to pay higher wages. Instead, uh, they would use it to boost returns to shareholders. So um, there you have it from the horse's mouth. It is, well, not that surprising, isn't it? No, it's not surprising it's... because that's exactly what's happened in the United States after their big company tax cut there. What's happened is uh, companies have uh, done share buybacks, they've increased dividends, um, they've showered investors with dollars. Um, and they haven't, on the whole, raised wages. Mm. It's the old furphy of neoliberalism, which is the trickle-down economics. Yeah, absolutely. It's trickle-down um, almost in its purest form. And, and like the rest of trickle-down, of course, um, it doesn't really trickle. Exactly. It's not even a dribble. Uh, now, let's talk about someone else uh, who has had a little bit of a slap on the wrist, but not a lot more. A former Minister for Small Business, Bruce Bilson, uh, he was engaged in a kind of um, questionable conduct and obviously the uh, Privileges Committee in Parliament then uh, investigated. But as we don't have a federal anti-corruption body, uh, we can't possibly pursue this any further. What was the outcome? 
Beckham. Yes, Bruce Bilson has been censured by the parliament, supposedly a very serious sanction indeed. Um, but as you point out, Amy, just a slap on the wrist that he won't go to jail. Uh, he won't face any criminal charges. Uh, basically, he's not going to have any problems in the rest of his life. And I think this is really does highlight, as you say, that we need a federal corruption body because what happened here is that Bruce Bilson took money from a lobby group while in the government and while making decisions on behalf of that lobby group. Now, mm. I think that's corruption, pure and simple. That's using your official office for personal gain. Um, we know that he accepted money from uh, the Franchisees Council, I believe. In fact, yep. not only that, but he was a director of that Executive lobby. chairman. <laughs> $75,000 a year as a salary for yeah. that role. So, I mean, in, in a different position in the public service, that would be illegal. Um, but because he's a parliamentarian or was a parliamentarian, um, no rules apply to him in that respect. And I think this is the kind of thing that makes ordinary voters enraged uh, because it's wrong. It's simply wrong. And, um, you know, I think we just need to tighten up this stuff radically. And the other thing is we just can't let the politicians be in charge of policing themselves because time and time again we've shown that – or they've shown that they're unable to do so. From Bronwyn Bishop – to, uh, in this case, Bruce Bilson, um, to the many other politicians caught up in expenses and travel rort scandals. Uh, sometimes they have to pay the money back. Bilson, in this case, I don't believe is even going to pay the money back. Mm. Um, and he's not going to face any difficulties. No, he won't. Um, and, you know, if we look about, look back a couple of months, uh, we did have changes to the Ministerial Code of Conduct for other areas. I mean, you can't even really enforce the ministerial code of conduct. There aren't necessarily any clear-cut repercussions. It's down to the discretion of uh, the Prime Minister. There are no sanctions in the ministerial code of conduct. So if you do the wrong thing, you can be sacked as a minister, but there'll be no criminal charges laid against you. There'll be no administrative penalties levied against you. Uh, there's no kind of extra political uh, penalty, if you like. Uh, the only thing that happens to you is political damage. Now, in the case of people who have already left politics, like, for example, Andrew Robb, who was clearly in breach of the Ministerial Code of Conduct when he took up a lobbying job less than 18 months after leaving the government um, in exactly the area he used to be uh, a minister in, um, you know, there's no sanction or penalty applies to a person like that. No, and when we're talking about, I guess, unfairness, we've heard and we've discussed a lot uh, last year about the lack of funds available when you uh, when an unemployed person is on New Start. It's just not even close to enough to, of a living, um, you know, sum to, to, to live on, to pay rent, to eat, to have any um, discretionary uh, expenses, um, you know, and really, we've only seen uh, in the last week this new reform or this new update in Newstart of an additional 50 cents a day, which uh, ends up working out to about $7 uh, per fortnight. I mean, is this kind of a bit insulting given that we've been pushing for so long and the evidence is just so strong, particularly ACOS has been um, advocating for a, a much bigger increase, as has even the Business Council of Australia? 
Yeah, it is an insult, Amy. And um, I, but you know, let's face it, the government likes to insult people on welfare. So um, you might even say it's calculated. I don't think in this case it is calculated. It's just a very, very low increase owing to the fact that inflation is very low. But it does absolutely highlight the fact that uh, unemployment benefits, that New Start is not enough to live on, that it's um, basically condemning people to poverty. Uh, the Australian poverty line is way above what New Start is, like hundreds of dollars above it. Uh, so that's an indictment in its in of itself. And Australia is a very wealthy country, as we as we can see by the billions and billions of dollars we hand out to wealthy people. Um, I think it's just an illustration of the priorities of, of our government, and not just this government, by the way, of uh, Labor governments as well. Labor had six years in office and didn't raise the rate of New Start. So um, there's plenty of bipartisan blame to go around on the way that we treat people on unemployment benefits in this country. Now, at the moment, unemployment is only 5%, but if we were to have a recession and unemployment was to spike upwards, then this is going to be a cause of mass poverty, really, in our country. It will be. And I mean, we have been talking about an increase for a very long time. So I don't even think it's an appropriate adjustment when you talk about inflation, that it hasn't changed for many, many years. You know, this is this should have been a, a substantial increase based on the fact that it hasn't changed. That's right. And it hasn't taken into account in particular housing costs, which have spiralled, as we know, in the major cities. So um, yeah, it, it's an ongoing scandal, but just one of the, the many, really. Mm. And there are many scandals happening, Ben. Uh, Peter Dutton t- tends to have one weekly. Uh, <laughs> he does, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah, I know. It's kind of interesting. He's our Minister for Home Affairs and uh, to this week and today we're questioning um, a particular decision he made to grant visas on public interest grounds to two young tourists who came to Australia to perform babysitting duties and uh, the question is whether he employed them. Yeah, it's a very, very interesting investigation here by AAP, actually, the Newswire. Um, They've spent two years in FOI and trying to get answers out of the Immigration Department. I think a very, very interesting case indeed. Uh, It looks as though um, some of, well, two, as we now know, um, au pairs, um, who were denied entry to Australia on their grounds of uh, they didn't meet the, the requirements, were then able to make telephone calls to a person unknown. We don't actually know how this chain of events happened, but the upshot of it was that they were granted tourism visas uh, on ministerial discretion, which obviously the, uh, the Immigration Minister under the powers of the Immigration Act is able to let anyone into the country that he or she likes. Um, But why this happened, we still don't know. We haven't got a proper answer from Peter Dutton about this. Um, I I think um, there's, you know, I'm not going to speculate on why they were let into the country, but it's a very interesting development in the light of Peter Dutton's exceptionally strong rhetoric about refugees and asylum seekers and indeed on immigration in general. And yet... When the time comes that he wants to make some exceptions to these very stringent rules, apparently that's okay. That can be done. Mm. Well, there is, even if there isn't yet established a conflict of interest, there's certainly a perceived one. Well, it's hard to know because, you know, I don't think we have enough information, Mm. really. Um, I, I can't see what the interest is at the moment. We don't even know why he did it. Why did he do it? I think he needs to answer those questions. Well, surely au pairs aren't that 
in short well, supply, are they? Here's another question. If they were in the public interest, which is what the grounds of the waiver was, mm-hmm. then surely there should be no issue in releasing what the public interest grounds were. Surely True. the public has a right to know what the interest of the public was. Mm. That's a very good point, Ben. And uh, if we're just going to extrapolate a bit further on scandals, uh, even politicians, our own politicians, have a view on the cricket scandal. Um, <laughs> you know, so you know, throwing stones in glass houses, etc. Uh, what have have the other have the politicians stated in regard to this huge outrage and blight on the Australian integrity and culture? I was kind of hoping to get through this morning without talking about the cricket. Amy, but, well, um, you can use some sarcasm if that, if yeah, you like. Yeah, well, look, you know, I think it. I actually think it does say some very interesting things about Australia from the viewpoint of, say, cultural studies, or mm. you know, what what it is about the Australian cricket team that is so close to the hearts of many many Australians. Um, I do think it's utterly ironic that politicians, including Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, have weighed in on this, demanding action and accountability from the Australian cricket team about the ball tampering scandal in South Africa. I would have thought that Malcolm Turnbull has plenty of accountability issues in his own government, considering the number of ministers, including a deputy prime minister, that have been forced to resign from his government in recent times. I really don't think Malcolm Turnbull needs to be making comments on uh, uh, Australian sporting codes uh, when there are rather more oppressing matters of state, you might say, closer to home. Yep. It's just irony abounds. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Thank you, Ben, for your excellent and insightful uh, points on federal politics this week. Trying to stay balanced here, Amy, always. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Full on integrity and independence here, only based on evidence. I do my best. I really do. (laughs) (laughs) Despite many criticisms that came my way during the Batman by-election. Yes, yes. So much controversy surrounding this man, Mr Ben Eltham, but we put him on air anyway. (laughs) Thank you, Amy. Yes, yes. Hopefully back next week. (laughs) Yeah, we'll let you on. It's all right. We'll let you through the door. That was Ben Eltham, who's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, highly controversial public figure and intellectual. You are listening to 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Well, I'm Gillian Triggs and you're listening to Amy Mullins on Uncommon Sense. Yes, that is correct. And thanks to Gillian. Gillian was our guest last week. Uh, She came in to talk about the post-truth era and the decline of parliamentary democracy. But I have with me now another distinguished professor. Uh, His name is Mark McKenna, and he works at the University of Sydney as an academic and a historian. And he's written several books, uh, including From the Edge, Australia's Lost Histories, An Eye for Eternity, The Life of Manning Clark, which I picked up uh, at reading last year and also looking for Blackfellas Point and Australian history of place. Uh, he has written a lot about that particular topic and this uh, quarterly essay covers Indigenous Australian history, which is our history. It's Australian history. And the title of the quarterly essay, which is issue 69, is called Moment of Truth, History and Australia's Future. And Mark McKenna joins me now in the studio. Hi, Mark. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you in. And um, and really, this is an important quarterly essay. And mm. um, 
I, I have heard you talk about um, the reasons why you wrote this quarterly essay and I think it's really important to start with that because mm-hmm. um, I guess that's the point of this uh, exercise. Sure. So, I mean, what was it that spurred you on? Because we've yeah. obviously had debates about uh, Australian history and the um, the statement from Uluru yeah. that yeah. came out and yep. um, we've seen the response or mm. non-response from our yeah. politicians. So what led you to, I guess, revive and bring back this a more in-depth discussion of this yeah, issue? Yeah, that's a good question. I suppose, you know, the starting point was clearly the, the Uluru statement. Um, like I found, the, I think the Uluru statement is one of the defining statements to come out of Indigenous Australia to be put to the Parliament and people of Australia. In fact, if you go to Parliament House and you walk around the halls of Parliament House, the corridors, you'll see the Barunga statement from Bob Hawke uh, that, you know, that was uh, put to Hawke um, and you'll see the Yakala petitions and that's where the Uluru statement is going to end up. It's going to end up on the walls of Parliament House. But I, th- I, th- I felt that the Turnbull government and many others couldn't see, couldn't see the significance of this statement. So... The starting point for me in writing the essay was the rejection of the Uluru Statement and two reasons. Firstly, because, you know, the way it was rejected, right? So the fact that here was a, here was a, a process that had come months and after months and months of dialogue and negotiation, it had come to um, the government and instead of dignifying it with, you know, a prime ministerial address to the nation which would have been appropriate after all, it was just rejected in the way that any other run-of-the-mill political issue might be dealt with, a press release in the middle of the day. It was such a terrible way to, you know, to end that process or at least temporarily end it. I don't think it is ending it. Um, so, and, this, and the other thing was, of course, that it was rejected on the basis of spurious claims about it being a third chamber of parliament, which it clearly was not. So underlying all of that for me was a couple of things. Firstly, it showed that we couldn't or hadn't learned how to negotiate with Indigenous Australians as equals. Secondly, um, it showed that underlying the underlying resistance in Australia to acknowledging the truth of the violent foundation of the country's settlement and invasion. And so we are still grappling with that. So there was, that was the starting point for me. And I guess combined with all that, you know, is, is the, the things that were happening just afterwards. Um, the Australia Day march in Melbourne, which was really quite an extraordinary event, I think, really groundbreaking. Um, and the debates over colonial statues and, you know, inscriptions. And so all of these debates were still often quite polarised. And so I wanted to ask whether we could find a way past that polarisation. And at the same time, I wanted to show the centrality of the Uluru Statement and the recognition of history to our future. So that's probably enough starting points. (laughs) Yeah, there is. Well, uh, there is a lot to start with here. And, I mean, 
if we take a, a one sentence from the Uluru Statement from the Heart, um, which is quoted in this quarterly essay, it says, in 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. So that's obviously referencing the referendum in 1967. Yep. Um, have... Indigenous Australians really been heard from this with this statement by the broader population. That's a. I mean, I th- being optimistic. I think that there is a large level of support out there for for the spirit of this Uluru statement. I really do think there's a strong level of support across all generations. So I'm not one. I don't actually see the government's response as being indicative of the community's re- uh, response. That's one of the great failings, you know. So Turnbull comes out and says, oh, by the way, this will fail. This hasn't got a chance at a referendum. How, how dare he say that? How does he know? He claims to know because, you know, he, he lost the Republican referendum and therefore um, he claims that this would go down. It's, got nothing, it's a very different issue and so much has happened since 1999. So, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's that failure to listen that failure to hear, that failure to see on the government's part. But despite all of that, I think that there's a strong level of community support for the Uluru Statement. And Turnbull recently, actually, you might remember that um, Bill Shorten came out and said, OK, we, we will allow an advisory body to run for a while. We'll trial it before we actually enshrine it, enshrine its existence in the Constitution, not its workings, its existence. Its, its workings would be subject to Parliament. So, but we'll trial this. And Turnbull said, "Ah, uh-huh, you want to do that? Well, we'll make it an election issue. Now, of course, that rings alarm bells because it suggests the possibility of a race election. Um, so we, it's hard to say where it's going to go um, now, but I think that it looks like there's a chance that it will become an election issue. And then uh, the danger there is, of course, that it could become, uh, allow, you know, a lot of people with ulterior motives to to turn it into a, a race uh, election. That is concerning. And I think you make a great point in this quarterly essay that these issues come back and forward into focus during mm. different news cycles when different activities are happening, committees, yep. referendum council reports, yep. and it's very hard to maintain a sustained dialogue about this topic. And I know last year when we were waiting for the Uluru Statement to come out, there was an intense period of maybe three or four weeks where people were speculating what's yep. going to happen, what yep. will people say. But that was probably the height of the discussion. Mm. And then, you know, the statement came out and it felt like there wasn't a huge amount of further um, exploration because it wasn't necessarily picked up with great vigour mm. by our politicians. And, no. you know, mm. obviously Bill Shorten um, has taken a bigger step forward than Malcolm Turnbull on this by saying that they would um, yeah, he's agree mo- to he's those. moved a little bit since the Gama, the, you know, Gama yeah. he said uh, it would just go to another committee and it, and it has gone to another committee, which is due to report in November, another bipartisan committee. I think it's the fifth in five or six years. <laughs> They'll never run out of work, will they? Well, no, I mean, you know, what you were saying earlier is it points to the difficulty of getting traction, okay? It's so hard for... You know, Indigenous affairs often seems to lurch between crisis and invisibility. We're either in crisis or, or, or there's silence. And that's the great thing we have to overcome. 
Yeah, and I guess this is why this quarterly essay is so important because what I think is uh, critical is that it's rooted in history and it's really exploring the background and the important things that have happened before this point, the yeah. path that Indigenous mm. Australians have taken yeah. advocating for themselves mm. and pushing for these reforms themselves over so many years. And that's right. I mean, 1967 is the last significant constitutional change that's more than 50 years ago now and that points to the extraordinary patience of every i mean you know 50 years and still waiting for the next significant step so you know and and also when you think of the debates that we've gone through over the last five decades this is the end point i see hopefully of five decades of quite polarised and divisive debate over our history. You know, in the 1980s, we had invasion or settlement, bicentenary. 1990s, whether we should apologise or not. 2000s, the history wars. Would we, uh, how do we count the number of dead on the, on the frontier? Um, and then more recently, of course, um, you know, debates over colonial statues and Australia Day has been a long-running issue uh, for the last 30, 40 years, but now it seems to have reached a, a much more... Uh, you know, th th there's just simply more effort to resolve that issue. It's always been a matter of debate, but now things are starting to shift, I think. So this is something we've been grappling with for a long, long time, and we have to find a way through it. So one of the things that the Uluru Statement recommended, of course, and the Referendum Council report, which came out a few months afterwards, and this was, you know, this was, again, this was kind of not even uh, mentioned in the government's press release, right? This, one of the central recommendations was for a Makarata, a truth commission, which would do two things. It would supervise a truth-telling commission or commissions plural and it would supervise the signing of treaties and oversee the negotiation and signing of treaties. Absolutely nothing was said on the government's part about that. Just ignored it. And... It's significant that Labor has actually supported that now. So this, this will be potentially an election issue. I mean, and I think we should make it one. Mm -hmm. if, it, if, if the government doesn't want to make it one, we should make it one. Because I think that in... I mean, the same-sex marriage survey is often used <laughs> frequently as a comparison for all sorts of things. But I think it showed that the government... the government's way of handling these issues and its response is so out of step with, you know, that you had, they had to be dragged kicking and screaming and go through a ridiculous in the process, in, uh, you know, of the same sex of the survey, yeah, to approve something that we already knew uh, what the, the community's, you know, response to. And, and in a way, I see this almost as a similar thing. So I think it should be an election issue and perhaps we need to have that struggle. We need to have that fight to sort out this once and for all. Mm, and to have a sustained fight, not just have this in and out discussion. That's right, that, exactly. Not to just sort of be either in crisis or, or, or not being heard at all. Exactly. And you do write in this quarterly essay that uh, historians have you know, had their opportunity to delve into the past. And more recently, we've had the History Wars, as you said, um, many books about frontier violence, um, such as Henry Reynolds, uh, and that debate around not only the numbers, but was it a massacre, ethnic cleansing, genocide, yep. the kind of terms that we're using for that. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, what's really important and what you say is that uh, Indigenous Australians haven't had that proper opportunity in a sustained public, um, you know, respected way to be able to give their evidence, to tell their stories um, together and in a unifying process. It's not about being divisive. And you um, talk about Inga Clendinen, who explained in 2009 that the purpose of truth-telling is not to, quote, wring our hands over past brutalities and injustices, uh, end quote, but in Australia's case to understand how punitive expeditions, which were often composed of a majority of Aboriginal native police, were sent out and did their work. Yeah. There's a lot of complexity yes. to the yeah, history yeah. No, it's of... it's not a two-sided frontier. Exactly. As you know, you know um, it is not a two-sided front. It's a very, very murky entangled sort of terrain, the frontier. And that's something I think that we haven't really understood either before. Aboriginal people in the Referendum Council report said over and over again that they had heard historians speak. Yeah. Now they wanted to tell this history as that they have experienced it and their parents and their grandparents. And that that would be on an international arena quite a cathartic and quite potentially in f- educational thing for all Australians and it would I think help us to break through some of the to understand that complexity you're talking about and to break through some of that polarisation Exactly and I guess when it isn't so cut and dry that is where there's room for people to politicise issues and capitalise on confusion um, and it certainly isn't uh, really clear what has happened but obviously that's partially the role of historians but also the role of oral history from people themselves indigenous australians who do pass these stories, stories and experiences on, on. They and they're highly accurate um because we know that they are their oral history mm. was their prime mode of telling stories and recording yep. what has happened whereas yep. obviously colonial australians were writing it down mm. um as they often say it's their library it's exactly their, it's, you know, it's their history book Exactly. And that kind of understanding, I think we need to stop applying our own standards to their history. Yes, we have to appreciate that we live in a country with two ways of knowing the past, different ways of understanding and knowing the past. That's another, that's yet another reason to have a truth-telling commission, I think. So um, there's on on all sorts of levels, the, you know, this comes back to your original point about we haven't listened, we haven't heard, we haven't seen what's being asked of us. And if we really read that statement carefully and looked at the Referendum Council's report, I mean, you know, that was the other thing. If you look, if you read that report, you can see how little of it was actually quoted in the reporting of the issue. You know, I, I think we need to go back to that report and read it closely. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's absolutely true. And I think um, there's a quote at the top of uh, this essay, which is from Galawari Unipingu, and oh, yeah. uh, it's, what a gift this is that we can give you if you choose to accept us in a meaningful way. And I think that to me has summarised my thoughts on it because we have these processes where, uh, and as you write, we recognise uh, Indigenous Australians as being the first owners of this land, but we don't don't really go a whole lot further than that no, in our no. understanding of their knowledge and yep. their culture and, mm-hmm. and what they could give to us in science, in the environment. Yep. There's so many fields um, of understanding that we don't share mm. that um, isn't being fully appreciated and it should be a source of national pride and unity, this yes. kind of history that we are lucky to have 
with us still. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I guess I think that it's a really great positive that you're also bringing out in this quarterly essay is celebrating and highlighting just how much of a positive experience, uh, reconciliation, recognition, truth telling, all of this could yeah, be. Yeah, that, that it can actually be productive. Yeah. You know, that, it can, that it can be liberating. Not that we shouldn't see it as being weighed, weighing us down potentially. So that's a, I think we have been fearful of recognising the violent foundation of, of our country's history because we're not, we, we think we've probably made the mistake that it means that we'll condemn, that will mean that we'll condemn everything about the country, that it'll become irredeemable, um, illegitimate. Um, but it, it's actually paradoxical in a sense that only by acknowledging that past will we be able to see, you know, if you look at the apology and, and many um, formal recognitions of history, people often say, oh, we should do this and move on. But actually, what we have to do is to acknowledge the history and bring it with us. Not, when people say move on, I worry that they mean turn away again, forget. Yeah? Say it once and then forget it. No. We have to understand how it's produced the country that we are today. That's the difficult part. That's the challenge. So if we look back, um, you know, just back to where you started, um, if you look back to the 1990s when both the recon- reconciliation, it was, as it was then called, and the Republic started in 1991, they were primarily both two movements centred on symbolic change. And one of the big things that's happened since the 1990s, I think, is that that kind of appetite for purely symbolic change has, has sort of now... That's now seen as not being enough, not sufficient. Part of the big message of the Uluru... The drafters of the Uluru Statement was we, we want more than symbolic change. We want substantive structural reform. We want you, the state, to change the way that you negotiate with us about the policies uh, that you make that govern, you know, and set that govern our lives. So... That is a big shift from the 1990s to now. And so there's a, there's a definitive statement, we don't want only, we want more than symbolic change. And, and we, have, we haven't heard that either, I don't think. No. And I think um, people, some people, particularly the politicians, have been spooked by the idea that it is real change because that requires a lot of political courage on their part. Perhaps they're perceiving that it requires more courage than is actually involved. But one of the things um, that you refer to and you question is this whole politicisation and um, ideology around creating a third uh, body or Mm. parliament or branch um, Mm. that is an advisory body. It's not even a decision-making body. It's to advise the parliament on legislation. And uh, the Referendum Council explicitly stated the body would only consider legislation that fell under the constitutional powers regarding race and territories. Mm. So this is something that should be quite uncontroversial. Yeah, it was a false claim on the government's part, a false claim. Completely. To, to claim it was a third potential third chamber of parliament. You know, when you ask yourself, well, why did they say that? The only explanation I can come up with is that they were actually fearful. I mean, if you think about the visual, the visual effect of an advisory body, turning on our television screens or looking online and seeing a group of Indigenous leaders sitting around a table, an advisory body, you know, 
that would be a, that just visually that, that that would be a big shift in the way we we perceive how indigenous legislation is framed now i think they were kind of fearful of that they're so accustomed to what they call parliamentary the supremacy of parliament that they haven't heard again they haven't heard that what's being asked of them is that they have to broaden and shift their definition of their own superiority um, and start to genuinely engage with Aboriginal people as equals. And I suppose at another level, I think they didn't understand the unique status of Indigenous, didn't accept yeah, the unique status of Indigenous people. The, the constant sort of refrain was, look, we're all equal, right? <laughs> yeah, which we're all equal now, but of course there's clearly a certain not. history. <laughs> there's a certain, or clearly not, but also there's a certain history behind. So, uh, you know, th there's a failure at that level to understand the historical, the way in which history has produced, has led to the position that Indigenous Australians are in now. I mean, they live history every day. It's not something that they leave behind or pick up and drop off when, when it suits them. So... There's so there's conceptually, you know, there's so much more distance to travel on the part of our government to understand those kinds of things. Yeah, so fear was a big thing, I think, mm. in that rejection. It's um, it's almost a fear of ceding some kind of power that they think they're giving that's right. away. Yeah, yeah, like they didn't put it in precisely those words, but I think that's kind of what explained their 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 response to it. That that fear of that they might actually have to sit down and, and genuinely deal with an Indigenous uh, body that was elected, you know. Mm. Um, that was too much for them. <laughs> and yet they negotiate every day with each other uh, behind closed doors and in the corridors of parliament. Um, you know, that that's a, a practice. And although we often don't see bipartisanship, mm. they do have a lot of um, negotiation and horse trading and yes. compromise making. They do. They do. And also we should remember that in the public service, uh, there are many uh, departments where it's obligatory to consult with Indigenous bodies before... Uh, legislation is drafted or, or recommendations are made. So it's already there in, in some ways, but what is being asked of the government is that it's actually formalised and, you know, that, that I think is what we have to discuss in, in the election or potentially before the election, I hope. I hope that, um, you know, the SA in some small way will, will encourage... Uh, uh, the discussion to get started again. Mm. And you do um, talk about something that a philosopher, Raymond Gator, has reflected on and uh, and you say that he explained, if we are to avoid jingoism, our love of country must be reflective and critical. And I mm. think um, the Anzac Day story and the history around it and um, the kind of obsession that uh, our government has with commemorating it um, is one example of where we can uh, have our past in our present yep. and constantly be reflecting back on how that has affected Australia. Mm. But uh, we cannot do that to the same extent with uh, issues like the frontier violence that was no. experienced and, mm. you know, the uh, so-called settlement where we've taken lands that uh, Aboriginal people haven't actually and, ceded. And, and we don't have in Australia a state-sanctioned memorial to those people who died on the frontier. We have not acknowledged that formally. Uh, and that—that that is uh, a, another 
you know, absence in our national sort of imaginary. Um, but, yeah, Anzac Day. I'm glad you mentioned that. <laughs> because, you know, one of the things I guess I'm trying to do in the essay, uh, underlying it all, is an attempt to show that the central, the heart of Australian history is Indigenous Australia and the encounter between those who came afterwards. That is the heart of Australian history. When you look at Anzac Day, you have to ask yourself, okay, which other nation in the world has invented a myth of national birth that takes place 16,000 kilometres offshore, not on its own soil, but way over there in Turkey. Now, why have we mm. done that? Why have we done it? Well, I think part of the reason is that we didn't work through the real issues about the history on our own soil and we turned away from that and we rushed to embrace this myth of national birth through a very, you know, a very traditional way, spilling blood on, in, on the battlefield. And we turned away from the frontier. We turned away from the history on our own soil. And the Republic is another example. You know, Australian Republicans have imagined that they could prosecute the argument for a republic. Imagine a republic which said nothing about Indigenous Australia, that somehow our independence was all tied up with the British royal family and, uh, Brit you know, severing our last ties with, with Britain. That's over. It's not really important anymore, although it still hovers around. Mm. The reasons to become a republic are not anything to do, ironically, with uh, the monarchy. They're actually to do with why, with our own society and what a republic might offer. Yep. And, and you can't think about replacing the sovereignty of the Crown unless you think about Indigenous Australia. Mm. So these two things, which we've always thought of as being separate, are actually connected. And we're starting to see a shift. You know, there's been some positive signs. Uh, Bill Shorten has actually said that um, recognition should take place first before the Republic. And I think that's... That's a great thing because it mm. should. We shouldn't even think about a republic until we first address this issue. Well, it is. It's a process of recreation and re-establishing what it is to be Australia as an independent nation away from our colonial past, but not yeah. necessarily forgetting our colonial past, but being informed by it mm. and not forgetting or no. ignoring it. And when you... That's right. And, and you know, when you think of that wor the word you used, patriot, patriotism, Right, which can, of course is dangerous in a sense because sometimes it can turn into jingoism. But the real source of patriotism in Australia, for me at least, you know, is one that grapples with, engages with, thinks about the importance of the land, the country itself, our Indigenous history and place. It's got nothing to do with feeling more proud of myself as an Australian because uh, Prince Charles will not be, be my head of state. I mean, okay, you know, that it's really... that's a, that All of that, that British legacy is gone and the real question, I think, in terms of patriotism... You know, when Malcolm Turnbull became a Republican, he says, he tells us, it was 1988, he was watching Prince Charles deliver the main speech at Sydney Cove and he was offended... Prince Charles delivering the main speech. 
But what else was taking place that day? People were marching about Invasion Day. And that's what I mean about patriotism. It's much more than just that old relationship with England. It's actually about looking inside the history of this country. That's what patriotism's about to me, mm. anyway. I couldn't agree more, and that's why we should all be patriots and read the whole quarterly essay. Well, well, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it is true, though, because I think it's a discussion that is nuanced and you're taking a big-picture mm-hmm. look yep. and a survey, really, across this issue, and I think that is what has been missing as we've looked at it in bits and yeah, for different uh, issues, and this br- is bringing them all together. Ex- well, thanks. So I'm glad you mm. see it that way because that's one of the things I'm trying to do. I'm trying to actually see these things whole rather than just in their, you know, separate parts. Mm, so I think that you've drawn some really important connections that people are missing and that Thanks, we really Amy. need to maintain those connections and reinforce through our reporting and our public debate. So I really do appreciate you writing this. Oh, well, um, thank you. Yeah, it's, it is really excellent and I'm not just saying that. So I hope everyone can actually read this quarterly essay. It's um, number 69 in uh, the issue and it's called Moment of Truth, History and Australia's Future and um, it's by Mark McKenna. So thank you, Mark, very thank, much for coming in. Thanks very much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. And that was Mark McKenna, who is a historian and professor at the University of Sydney, the author of many books and is a leading historian here. Um, So please do check it out. Uh, All those links will be on our social media and you can listen back to this interview later today on our podcast and on SoundCloud. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR and we're going to talk about AFL and a historical angle here on this show with two of the best historians in Melbourne. I've handpicked them and they're here in the studio to talk AFL right now and their history blog on AFL, which is fabulous, if I may say so. And it's called History from the Centre Square. I have with me now Mary Tomsick and Geordie Silverstein. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. Pleasure to chat, AFL. Perfect timing because we've just had uh, round one. How exciting is that? Now, we need to upfront disclose who we go for. I think <laughs> I've already done that. <laughs> Obviously, Geelong, um, Mary and Geordie. Well, I support uh, the Mighty Saints. Yes. And I'm a doggy supporter. Oh, so we have one recent premiership winner and one <laughs> not so lucky. <laughs> Very unlucky. Very yep. unlucky. Yeah, we were talking off air about the 2009 controversy, uh, which is a big issue between uh, some people, including me. Um, So I'm going to discuss and we're going to discuss your blog and how this came to be. And then we're going to talk about what just happened and what's happening now and in history. It's all very exciting. Um, first of all, how did this blog come about? Because we were just talking um, off air about footy tipping and the ongoing debate as to whether you could possibly tip against your own team or not. Um, we have two very different views on the panel here. Let's just start with that. <laughs> well, yes, tipping is a pretty serious activity. Um and look, I would never tip against the doggies, but I can see a case to be made if tipping is your game. Mm. 
Indeed. Uh, yes, I would never tip against the Saints. Um, and there's also, of course, the historical grudges that one, you know, has to factor into tipping. So it's so you know, true. rare mm. to tip against teams that you've lost grand finals to. Mm. Tip four, sorry. Yes. Uh, teams that you've lost grand finals to. But we do definitely uh, in our department, the History Department of yeah. Melbourne Uni, the, uh, well, the, sorry, the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies. Um, SHAPS, Shaps, as it's the known. School, uh, it's a great comp, acronym. Which we uh, run. Um, we do have people who are, see it as a completely separate thing and are yeah, fully right. prepared to tip against their team. Very pragmatic. Very pragmatic. Yes. Mm. It's about the glory of the tipping. Wow. Is there like a, a huge prize at the end or is this like all just to be number one? <laughs> huge. Look, there's a lot of honour and glory yeah. that goes yeah. along. And a bit this. of cash. Yeah, a little bit of cash. <laughs> right. That's definitely nice. There's not like some kind of free coffee for a year at a certain cafe on campus or anything? Well, if someone offered, we'd take that. Yeah, I think that would be pretty motivating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no. Yeah, no? It's a, no, it's a small Just cash uh, at the pool, moment. Yeah, that yeah. people contribute yeah. to. and That's yeah. awesome. Well, um, let's talk about those rivalries first before we get into the history because I'm sure that will come up. What, um, in your view, are the greatest rivalries for the Saints and the Western Bulldogs? Oh, maybe just history is the doggy's greatest rival. (laughs) There's been some serious ups and downs um, with the club. So, look, I wouldn't wouldn't want to say one particular team at all, but um, I guess just kind of that overall, and and this is in part my interest um, in football. I came late to football um, supporting the kind Mm. of the emotional investment um, in it and I guess as a fan, particularly riding those waves and seeing the way people um, do that is, is I think that's the biggest rival in football. Totally. Yeah, I think for the Saints, it's probably the uh, history of the party atmosphere and our <laughs> penchant for picking leaders who are not very good at leading the club. I love it. Uh, yeah. And administrators who take us in the wrong direction. I think mm-hmm. we're, we're pretty good at that. Yep. But um, yeah, I mean, I also come late to going to footy games, but my brother and my dad have gone, you know, my brother's whole life they went. Um, I've inherited from my brother a a very uh, strong sense of history of grudges. Mm -hmm. He is very attached to, you know, particular players or particular games. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, Adelaide and Geelong and and Collingwood is the most obvious uh, team's Fair enough. um, Who've been us in grand finals. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, yeah, I mean, obviously the Saints are incredibly unsuccessful and there's a certain pride attached to that lack yes. of success. <laughs> I do remember the 99, no, no, 97 grand final um, was particularly gutting because yeah. uh, I thought that they would get up against Adelaide yeah. and particularly with Robert Harvey and some really good yeah. players in that team. I mean, that was your chance. It really was and I, I wasn't at the grand final but at the preliminary final uh, against North uh, the week before and, mm. and that was huge and amazing and you know, you, I mean, I guess you always go in thinking you've got a chance and, yeah, they were just just a wreck. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Depressing. Pretty depressing. Don't worry. Your turn is around the corner. I just know it. <laughs> I have a habit of saying that often and I think people could um, get annoyed with me for saying it because I go yeah. for Geelong yeah. and we have recently won many premierships. Mm. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say the grudges for me would be Hawthorne and Collingwood. Um, I don't know why really just because you know it's annoying 
Yeah. Um, and often when I go to the football, particularly at the MCG and Geelong play Hawthorne, they usually lose when I go. Mm. And then when I don't go, they win. So I get quite upset about that. <laughs> but that said, on my birthday last year, they did win against Hawthorne and I uh, took that as a sign. Yep. Totally. So, uh, yeah, but I, I certainly had an upbringing of football in my family mm. and, you know, starting with Buddha Hocking and Gary Ablett Senior and that kind of, that team. Um, but it's there's so much uh, emotional investment, as you say, and history behind mm-hmm. all of this um, discussion and obsession that we have. Not everyone has, but certainly a lot of Melburnians mm, have. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly that comes out in a range of... Um, ways in social media, on blogs like your blog, on the Kuda Beans when they interview a range of historical figures from the AFL. But I want to talk about your blog because it fascinates me that you have utilised your skills as historians (laughs) to further another passion of yours, which is AFL, and illuminate these rounds, each round for us, uh, by highlighting some of the interesting things that happened. So, I mean, let's talk about uh, round two because that's where we're coming up to. there are a couple of things uh, that happened in round two around this, uh, the periods that you're looking at. And one of the interesting things um, that I really like that uh, in your forthcoming blog post you're talking about is uh, this huge... Um, outcry about uh, the scandal of uh, Cricket Australia and the the Australian cricket team over in South Africa um, tampering with the ball and uh, this whole hoo-ha about whether the captain will be sacked, Mm. you know, he's been stood down but will he be stood down forever, Um, what are the repercussions and you talk about an example in May of 1932 um, about a Blues captain, Colin Martin, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. And that's what we try to do with our blogs. We try to link it to something that's happening now to choose a year to go back to to look at the footy record. Because mm, there's um, too newspapers. much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there's too huge. much. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of our way in each week. And with the great digitised collections of the footy record that the State Library has and also newspapers on Trove, this has been a boon mm. to us mm. to actually be able to do this. So, yeah, that took us to Carlton and um, Colin Martin, who um, his club, the Blues, had performed well in the first um, couple of rounds in 1932 so he offered he asked the you know the um, committee could he stand down because he felt that the leadership role wasn't enabling him to focus on his game Um, but the committee said no and asked him to play on and take keep the role as captain which which he did it's quite an amazing precedent and event isn't it for a captain Mm. to say I think this is impinging on my performance I'd rather put the team first and my, you know, performance. Yeah, it's quite hard to imagine that happening now. All the pressure is Mm. on captains to say they're not, it's not interfering. Um, And it's, I guess, a real sense of the different changing sort of ideas of masculinity, of leadership, of this idea of the team and where does an individual fit within a team Mm. um, that that, yeah, could happen. Yeah. And there's some, you know, examples of, great captains in history, such as, I don't know, Joel Selwood, uh, (laughs) who celebrated his 250th game on the weekend, but also other captains like I know Nick Rewalt, you know, retired last year. Um, I mean, these are people who seem to be the overachievers. Mm. Uh, They tend to be stars within their own 
clubs but also then take on this other leadership role and try and, uh, you know, shepherd and look after and lead the whole team and particularly the younger draft picks who come through. Um, and, I mean, if you look at the Geelong setup, you know, you've got Gary Ablett Jr. coming in as kind mm. of like an unofficial captain. He's kind of like an older brother to the new uh, players there. I mean, in terms of... Um, this particular example of um, leadership and and particularly football leadership, do you think um, there are other examples of, you know, that where someone has really shown strong leadership in the history of, of football? Golly. Big That's question. A, that I is know. a big question. I, know. I just thought I'd <laughs> chuck it in there. Yeah. I mean, well, we saw, so in a post that we did um, last year, um, also about round mm. two, um, we looked at, because it was the first year of the AFL women's, which, and of course, you know, we're reflecting this, this week on the, the great grand final, final from uh, last weekend. But yeah, so in, in 2017, sorry, in last year, we, we talked about um, the way that women have been playing organised um uh, Australian rules footy um, for such a long time and the leadership role that the whole group of women um, have taken, I guess, in, in um, furthering women's presence on, on the footy field and, and in the stands and, and as umpires. Mm. And I think um, linked to that and not just on the field, but someone like Beck Goddard is really interesting in terms of leadership of who's who's allowed to be a coach <laughs> and who's mm. given that status and her her leadership um, success, particularly last, last year. Yeah. And, and as you um, wrote in 2017, um, you talk about the fact that women have playing, been playing organised AFL since 1915 in Perth. So mm-hmm. this is um, certainly not a new thing, women playing AFL, Absolutely. but it is a new thing to create a profession out of it and hopefully build it up enough to where they can just focus solely on being a professional AFL footballer instead of having to have two jobs, uh, which I know must be pretty insane. Um, but if you're talking about leadership, that reminds me of um, something that's just recently happened, which is Peter Searle also kind of echoing mm. that, which is to say women should be coaching women's teams and men's teams yep. Yep. and there shouldn't be, you know, this just kind of unicorn like this one woman yes. there, you know, <laughs> having to carry that torch. I mean, Absolutely. that's something that's really interesting about um, gender and the the mm. roles that are still kind of entrenched at the moment in AFL. Yes, um, entirely. And I think it really, I, I think it makes us, or we should give us, gives us pause to think carefully about what makes a good leader because there is, I think, a general sense of a particular type of person. And one might even say that about some of the coaches that are currently... Mm. Um, in mm. coaching mm. Um, and leading clubs, but I think there's a whole different way, there's a whole range of ways people can lead in all walks of life and football is one of those too. True. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a sort of a rare moment of being very proud of St Kilda's leadership and St Kilda's uh, ideas of gender that we were the f- we hired um, Peter Searle and, mm. and she's had a great impact on the club, I think, and it's wonderful. It's really great that she's there and there should be more women at every club and women in more leadership positions at every club. Exactly. Yeah. And as she is an assistant coach, I mean, she's already in the pipeline mm-hmm. to be a future 
coach, exactly. the, the head coach of a male team. Yep. I think that would be really exciting. Yeah, that would be a really huge moment, I mm. think. Yeah. It's about acknowledging skills and respecting mm-hmm. all sorts of people for what they bring to the game. Exactly. And we've seen that discussion also happen around women commentators. Um, and, you know, we've seen some great uh, strides from the ABC to have some wonderful women on Outsiders on their TV show mm-hmm. talking about football and other sport every week. Sometimes it's just all women talking about sport, which is great to see. Um, but there's also, you know, some great female commentators coming up. And I hope that would also potentially kind of provide a bit more momentum. Absolutely. And I think um, someone like Kato Halloran is one of the great, you know, really exciting, really inspiring stories of, um, you know, we were at uni together and um, as undergrads and, you know, she went on and did a gender studies PhD and is now a f- writer, footy a sports writer and editor at The Guardian and just doing amazing things mm-hmm. for women's sport, but for sport in general and, and I think is a great leader um, in this field. Yeah. And for her to be able to bring a really critical gendered analysis to a mainstream mm-hmm audience, I think, is really important. That is actually quite rare, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It really is. And that's only kind of starting to happen. I mean, we've seen Mm -hmm. the New York Times bring in their gender initiative to have a gender lens across all their reporting, but that's kind of new for them. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, I mean, in your round two uh, post for this week, you do bring out some of the really interesting language that's used in the history of AFL. Uh, Not only how we refer to the teams, like, for example, Fitzroy was called the Maroons or the Maroons, and then uh, we have, obviously, Footscray, which are the tricolours. I mean, that kind of really interesting historical language is uh, it gives a lot of character and flavour for the past, but why don't we use any of that language anymore? And what were some of the funny or interesting, um, you know, linguistic choices that you've come across over the, the time of doing this blog? I think um, it is that language that really appeals. And it, it was funny because one of the blogs we wrote last year, we headed back only to the 70s and the footy record just wasn't as <laughs> <laughs> And the mullets. Yeah. 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 There were lots yeah. more colour photos. But, it was, but it's really, yeah. I think what really draws me to it is reading these kind of forms of expression. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, I don't know. I guess linguistic styles change over time. Um, corporatisation comes in, I think, mm. and homogenises um, how we speak um, and write. Even things like when we were, so we, we've set up this new site for, for our um weekly posts um, at, for History from Centre Square and, and we were talking about how do we label each team and, of course, teams have changed their names. So, yeah. you know, for the doggies, is it Footscray Bulldogs or is it Western Bulldogs? We made Footscray. that decision to go Footscray, Come on. right, because yeah. it was a decision, it was a corporate decision mm. to make it Western Bulldogs. What, what's your stance then on South Melbourne and Fitzroy? Because that was quite sad to see Fitzroy leave and go... Yeah. Yes, we've included both of those as well as we're trying to really um, embrace that Mm. um, historical... Well, the clubs still reference their their history in their Mm -hmm. songs, but it isn't really front of mind. It's more front of mind for the the fans who have been going for these teams since they were the Fitzroy Lions or the Bears. And some don't want to change. Like they they are Mm. holding to that team and then 
that's the end of it. And yeah, and yeah. for other people, they left the team then. And yeah. you know, I know, you know Tony Birch um, talks about, who's a uh, writer and historian, um, he talks about that he went for Fitzroy. I hope I'm remembering this story correctly. <laughs> um, and when they went to Brisbane, he was he just left footy for mm. a few years and just wasn't interested and then eventually came back to Carlton. Um, oh, wow, that's an interesting leap. Yeah, mm. so it's interesting, like, the, the personal history. That's, a th- I guess, the thing about footy is that we all have these really personal investments, these personal stories that are family histories or community histories are about where we grew up or they're about a particular player. My uncle changed teams when he, you know, to follow a particular player. It's mm. these really, um, there's a lot of emotional investment and a lot of history um, within footy. That's so true. Well, I, I know we can all say that from personal experience and mm. certainly here at Triple R, football is a topic of conversation <laughs> in the office. Uh, and uh, also, uh, one of the things I found really interesting when we're talking about language is uh, one of your references to um, the proposed tour of America where we would send 50 AFL players to tour America and Canada um, to uh, to promote the game. And one of the quotes, which is so fabulous, is, it is confidently expected that the thrilling character of our game will so strongly <laughs> appeal to the American that it will not be a difficult matter to induce them to take it up as a national winter sport. <laughs> wow, there's so yeah. much passion in that. <laughs> yeah. Totally bold. Yeah. And totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so not true. We had yeah. another um we had another dip into looking at what happened um in the US and I think yeah. it was um 1911 an umpire Harry Bromley headed over there and I kind of it, it also gives us access to another time he turned up and he had this same sort of passion of introducing um, sport he wanted it to play, to be played in the military in the US in the military colleges he turned up um, and didn't realise that the colleges were on holiday so he had to wait eight weeks before he could wow. um, talk to them but and, you know he kind of went nowhere but he just believed so fully that of course America will take on our great game. <laughs> <laughs> and that an umpire was the ambassador. Yes. yes. That's yes. controversial. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's a different time. <laughs> mm, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, you often sporadically see these news uh, stories where some um, expats in Australia have decided to play football in a New York park or something, yeah. and, but it's not, you know, of a huge scale that America no. has embraced our great no. game. But that's okay because we've got it. No yeah. one else needs to have it. Um, so let's also talk now about uh, some of the... I guess plans, predictions for this round because, you know, how and also how history might inform our predictions mm-hmm. for this round. Uh, I have the fixture with me and if anyone wants to play along, so to speak, and <laughs> go, you can go to the AFL website and also to centersquarehistory.com, which is the blog we're talking about, which is referencing and discussing history, the history of AFL round by round. You can look back on round one already, which is up there, and uh, reflect on the greatness of what happened in round one across history. But let's talk about now, 2018. Um, There's some pretty important games coming up. Let's talk about your team's games, because obviously that'll be um, something I'm sure you have an opinion on. So maybe let's start with North Melbourne and St Kilda. Yep. I reckon we've got a good shot. I thought uh, I was at the game in round one on uh, on the weekend yep. on Saturday. Beat the Lions. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lions aren't a huge team to beat, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> hey, they've got Luke Hodge now. He's That's big. true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he had a few moments uh, during the game. Yeah. Um, yeah, 
I think you know they they're working together. There there were definitely moments when we looked like a team, mm. uh, and it was quite exciting. And there's some really exciting young players coming up. Um, it's interesting watching a team where they're really like there's no standout superstar. It's yeah. really a um, a team of of people who work really hard and who are, uh, who are still very exciting to watch. Um, yeah, I reckon we got a really good shot at beating North. Uh, I think it's yep. a, you know it's the Good Friday game, so it's a big moment. It is special. Um, it's at Etihad. Yep. So we're not the home team, but, but it, is it is still is a your home, home ground. ground. Yeah. Um, so we could crumble under the pressure. That is just <laughs> as likely as we have a glorious victory. It's really yeah, that's the beauty of St Kilda is you don't know where the story will go. So exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps you on your toes. Oh yes, the beauties of being a Saints fan. Yeah. Uh, let's head now uh, to the other important game coming up now, uh, which is now I've got to find it. Geelong. I'm just going to say it's Geelong because I want to put my two cents in, which is it's our home game. No, it's not. (laughs) Hang on a second. It's at the MCG. Well, we win grand finals at the MCG, so (laughs) it's kind of our second home ground, isn't it? Um, But it is against Hawthorne, so that's quite contentious. Uh, I would say that the playing style between these two teams is very stop and start. It's often around the edges. drives me nuts that they don't kick it down the middle. Um, So it might be slightly painful with the playing styles of these two teams coming up against each other. But I'm excited because Patrick Dangerfield should be back, which means we have a trifecta of Joel Selwood, Gary Ablett Jr. (laughs) and Patrick Dangerfield. It's huge. This is going to be a big one and it's on Monday. So I'm tipping Geelong, obviously. Uh, And then the other highly important game is also at Etihad. uh, And this is from, well, it's the Western Bulldogs against the West Coast Eagles. What is your prediction? I'm terrible at tipping and I find going to the football <laughs> so nerve-wracking. I like going Teach to watch you other fingers. games. Yeah, yeah, and I get really stressed and can't concentrate. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I really want the doggies to win and I will yeah. tip the doggies, but yeah. um, I feel I can't give any sort of logical analysis mm. <laughs> to what may happen. Well, it is quite confusing because they had that big premiership win mm, and then yeah. the year after we were all expecting the same thing, you know, this a really big year yep. and, uh, and it didn't happen. Mm. There was a lot of disappointment from the Western Bulldogs fans. Yeah, and look, um, Luke Beveridge read a particular picture storybook to the players in that the year before, uh, at the start of the year that we won the premiership and I don't know, maybe they need to <laughs> go back to that. Go back to that what storybook was that? <laughs> um, Must I've be magic. I've the name. Um, I've got a copy of it. <laughs> it's about a dog that a keeps dog. keeps trying. Um, oh, wow. It's, it, look, it's an inspirational story, <laughs> so I think maybe we need to get back to a picture book reading yeah. and um, <laughs> that may help. Wow. I think that could be a good um, blog post for the future is what inspirational source mm. material mm. have teams used in the past to get over the line? Thank you. Yes, we will we use will. that one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll credit you with that. I look forward to yeah. reading that one. <laughs> um, but we've got maybe one minute to look over a couple of other games. I don't know what yep. – I mean, some of the particularly interesting ones I think would be the Adelaide Crows versus Richmond. Mm-hmm. That's yes. a biggie at Adelaide Oval. You'd hope that Adelaide would get up in their home yep. Yep. 
around. We've got a tiger supporter in our house and we still have our front fence painted yellow and black. So really? That's pretty impressive. (laughs) I'm I'm hoping for that. So this is how I think about it, what will make our household happy. Um, Tigers. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Yeah, I mean, I feel a little bit bad for Adelaide because I really wanted them to win last year. So I'm going to be empathetic and, you know, give them a bit of a sympathy (laughs) vote for my... That's my tip there. Yeah, um, and maybe let's just uh, speculate on Collingwood versus the Giants because that's an interesting clash. We've got Collingwood uh, currently 16th on the ladder, but that doesn't really mean anything. Um, and the Giants, and a new newish team, mm. but they've done pretty damn well. They've I done mean, very well the last couple yep. of years. Collingwood yeah. played okay in round one. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ish. <laughs> Maybe I'm being generous. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. Let's just say not bad. Um, yeah. You know, what, what do you think could happen there? And it's an interesting thing with the whole new versus old. Yeah. I know. It's kind of definitely as a Saints fan, you know, we've been waiting so long for Premiership and we also haven't played yeah. finals for so long. I definitely get a bit of like, oh, you upstarts. Like, yeah. go back in your <laughs> box. You can wait. <laughs> Have patience. But yeah, I don't know. I reckon they could win they it could on the weekend. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That one's at the MCG. So that'd yeah. be really interesting. Uh, well, I mean, it's slightly unfinished tipping, but that's okay because we want everyone else to fill in the gaps. Absolutely. And the whole point is this is a, a inspiration point. It's a kind of way to explore football in such a rich way, um, go, going back into history, looking at these great photos and clips that you put in there and uh, I guess reliving the past where, you know, we didn't get to be part of the glory days, some of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Geordie and Mary, for coming in. Uh, it's been so fun to talk to you about AFL with you and hopefully uh, we can follow closely on this blog and get some more inspiration. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. And uh, if you want to check out the blog, please do. It is centersquarehistory.com and uh, it is by the two historians from the University of Melbourne, Mary Tomsick and Geordie Silverstein, and they are passionate AFL fans, as you can tell. Um, we're all on the same page here. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRRFM. I'm Amy Mullins. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.